0: This podcast is made possible thanks to the History Department at Northern Kentucky University. They call us the Flying Circus, Two West Virginians in the Great War. I'm your host Michael Coker, producers LaRon Jones, Kevin Eagles, and Ethan Pulse. And our very special guest today is Mr. Daniel Gabriel. Summer of 1914 saw the beginning of the Great War, what we commonly refer to as World War I. Despite having sympathy for the Allies, France, Britain, Russia, the United States decided to remain neutral, staying away from this distant conflict. When the United States finally entered the war, the lives of millions of Americans were inexorably changed. Over 5 million men were called up to serve in this war to end all wars as it was hailed. Nine million women mobilize themselves, either working abroad or at home in vital support roles. On a scale this vast, it's easy to lose individuals. Their hopes and dreams, successes, and failures kind of boiled away to nothing as we pursue data that's at once concrete and horrific. Fortunately, the voices of those who lived during this cataclysm can still be heard. They echo up to us in those very rare televised interviews or oral interviews with veterans of World War One, but far more commonly, their voices reside in ink. They're locked away in the written word. They're buried deep in the pages of books, diaries, interviews, and personal letters. Through happenstance, I came upon a remarkable trove of such letters. I was amazed at what I could hear. These letters were written by two West Virginians, Cecil, Zeke, Gabriel, and the love of his life, one Louise Marsh. After the war, these two were happily married, had many children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren. At the time of their letters, which primarily are from 1917 to 1919, this blissful future is still unknown and uncertain. Letter after letter speaks to their love and devotion for each other, but also to the anxiety that they are both enduring as wars upended their plans and separated them. I managed to track down Daniel Gabriel, grandson of Zeke and Louise Marsh Gabriel.
1: Uh, I'm the oldest grandchild of Zeke and Louise Gabriel. I was born in 1950. I have four younger siblings. Uh, at this point in time, I'm retired. Uh, I am a professional writer. I have about nine different books out. And uh, I spent most of my, aside from traveling around the world extensively, uh, I worked in arts and education quite a bit. Bringing artists into schools. As I said, now I'm retired, my wife and I are enjoying two grandkids. Uh, Zeke, my grand, my granddad grew up in, in West Virginia, he was orphaned by the age of 12. In His, his mother died of a, an illness, I think scarlet fever, but I'm not sure. Uh, but his dad handled the payroll for the mines and he was shot and killed in a robbery one time when he was bringing the payroll up. And, uh So the memories I remember granddad talking about growing up was going to school barefoot and kicking the cows to stand up so you could stand on the warm spot on the earth and, and warm your feet before you ran on for another distance. And uh he went to maybe seventh or eighth grade. He was a smart guy, particularly in things relating to construction and building, which became his career. But that was the end of school for him. Uh Louise went on. So she went through high school and did something with a teacher's college. I'm not actually sure what degree did she get, but she was eligible to be a school teacher, and that's what she was doing when the two of them met. Uh She stopped that when they got married and was uh, an active homemaker and, and travel partner after that. Um, there used to be church socials, and what one of the formats they would take would be that young women of the area would prepare a lunch. And then everybody would come together at the lunchtime. I think this would be like directly after a church service. And the young men of the region would bid on whose lunch they wanted to, to buy. And obviously some people were terrific cooks, and so you might go, oh man, I, I gotta have a piece of that, you know. And, but uh, other people would be bidding for the affections of the person who made the lunch. And anyway, Grandmom had made one of these lunches, and I should guess I should call her Louise, had made one of these lunches. And Zeke came along and decided he was going to bid until he, as high as he had to go. And and I forget what he paid, but he, he won the bidding, and they got to sit and, and then eat the lunch together off by themselves. And it just took off from there, and they never looked back. And I'm sure they had arguments and downtimes and whatnot in their relationship, but it was not something that came through to their grandkids. What came through to us grandkids was uh, just deep affection. This must be what real love is like. Um, Lots of fun between themselves, just enjoyed being around each other together.
0: When Zeke went off to war, he immediately missed Louise, but he was determined to serve his country. On October 25, 1917, En route to Inspection Center, uh, located in Columbus, Ohio, he wrote, Dearest little girl, arrived in Bluefield safely, but feeling a little blue. I would give most anything to be with you tonight, but I will have to get over that, I suppose. We expect to set sail tomorrow for Columbus. Gee, I'm anxious to get into it. It is worthwhile to fight when one has something to fight for. I only hope I pass at Columbus. Dear be a good little girl, and when I return with all those iron crosses and red crosses and cross eyes and things, maybe everything will turn out all right. This was the first letter that I opened, and it was also the first letter that I was given a glimpse into the amazing sense of humor C-CAD. In fact, if I ever published these letters in any way, I would push for the title to be Iron Crosses and Red Crosses and Cross Eyes. Rolls off the tongue. The next day, Zeke is on a Pullman train car. You know, the physical inspection is right before him. This is going to determine the course of his future. And he is walking around blowing off steam and he accidentally pushes some buttons. Porter shows up. At a loss of what to do, he decides just to have the porter sign one of his shoes in his handbag. On a more serious note, he added in that same letter, Dear, I would love to be with you tonight. I miss you so much, dear. I am coming back to you just as soon as I can. I will feel more like a man when I do come back. I think I'm going to like it. He closes by promising Louise he will bring the Kaiser back and you can punch his eyes out. Now, Louise was an equally gifted humorist. In a 1918 letter to her beloved, she related how she had mistakenly received a misdelivered letter. Clydey brought me a letter last night, and I opened it and I read in a strange handwriting, Dear wife, I am coming home soon. I have to say, since this was radio, dear was spelled D-E-R-E and home H-O-A-M. She resumes. Man, I nearly collapsed with shock. I really hadn't known I was married, especially to a man who spelled so abominably as that. When I recovered sufficiently, I investigated that interesting epistle thoroughly. Learning further, I own two children. This playful sense of humor helped ease their fears throughout their long-distance courtship. Over and over again, they exchanged letters filled with witticisms mingled with sadness and fear.
1: One of my strong memories of Louise is her laugh. She found lots of things to laugh about, and uh, that would always sort of catch my eye of, oh, that could be a funny thing. All right, we can do that. And uh Granddad, he had a great deadpan delivery, where if you weren't careful, you were going to get snookered into believing something he had said. But if you just watch, like, you know, sort of watch his eye, you'd see an eye droop in your eyes. Oh, he's put me on here. I get it. And he in, in those days, people wrote letters back and forth. You may may remember that. But letters from them. Uh, Usually Louise would write most of the words, but then Zeke would put in little cartoon figures, almost just stick figures, but much better done than just a stick figure. And you'd have some little story going around on the margins of the pages. And as kids, we couldn't read all the words that Louise wrote, but we could go through there and follow the story that, that Zeke had put through for us. I always enjoyed that.
0: On October twenty seventh, 1917, Zeke proudly relayed the results of his physical examination to Louise. I arrived in Columbus, okay, and have passed and have my uniform and am a full-fledged soldier all but the training. Believe me, it takes a man to get through. We've had it hard all day, but are through the worst. I passed almost perfect. I had just had two bad teeth and a crooked little finger done by baseball. My heart was extra strong and my eyes perfect. We passed one poor little guy, fainted while being vaccinated, and a lot more got shaky, but old Zeke didn't mind it a bit. Zeke's military record shows that his formal enlistment date was October 28, 1917. After this process was completed, he spent the next few days settling into camp life while waiting for his first assignment. It was in the Columbus barracks that he began a long patronage and advocacy for the Young Man's Christian Association. Known by this acronym, the YMCA, or just simply the Y, as he called it in the letters. Zeke visited the Y whenever and wherever he could, taking in concerts and shows, and he used it as a place to write letters to send back home to Louise. According to the Y's website, when World War I began, the YMCA launched a massive program of morale and welfare services for the military, serving 90% of American military forces in Europe.
1: They certainly had a strong faith throughout their lives. And the only reason I hesitate to use the word religious is that sounds like they might have been officious or, or, or persnickety or something. And they were not like that. Um, they, they were spiritual without being overly religious. I don't know if that, that's maybe not quite the way to put it, but they were regular church attenders. They went to St. Andrew's United Methodist. They were members there for probably over half a century and, uh, Uh, A lot of grandmoms, a lot of Louise's poems were uh, about faith-related matters and so on. And again, something that really came through in a strong way to us as grandkids. You know, this is a clear faith, and here's a clear way to follow it.
0: From the Columbus barracks, Zeeks was sent to Kelly Field in Texas. He reported his arrival to Louise on the very same day. There are thousands here. Gee, I like it fine. We haven't gotten fixed up yet, but I think we will be tomorrow. There are 400 airplanes here, and they make some noise. Zeke was chosen to be part of the 147th Aero Squadron, formed on the 11th of November, 1917. He wasn't a pilot, but served as a mechanic, responsible for repairing and maintaining these high-tech weapons. In 1917, the Air Force did not exist yet. It was part of the aviation section of the Army Signal Corps, the Air Force coming into its own after World War II in 1947. The Wright brothers had successfully flown at Kitty Hawk, North Carolina in 1903. Just a couple of decades later, their invention was being used for war. First, the generals saw these new machines as novelties, uh, not worth anything. But as the war ground on, they discovered they had a particular use for observation and then bombing and then aerial attacks. They became indispensable to the war effort. The fact that Zeke was chosen to work on such cutting edge technology speaks to his natural intelligence
1: you know both he and my dad were incredible at all sorts of fixing things and and making things and what are we going to do about this and here's a solution i have none of that i'm just completely overwhelmed and it was overwhelming as a kid watching them figure things out it's like what how we and sure enough it would end up working i remember a couple of other incidents i should just mention with my with my granddad uh I remember watching him save a little girl from drowning. Uh We were, I, I, I don't know, if maybe an, not an exciting story, but we were just at some family gathering near a creek. And uh, I was young too, and I remember him. There was suddenly, somebody's falling in the creek. And we looked over, and there's a little girl face down, and everybody in a bit of a panic, and he was the first one to react. Boom. Dive in, grab her, get her out, start doing um you know, breathing, breathing stuff on the shore and, and what stayed with me from that incident was cool under fire. You know, everybody else is in a panic as I would be and he knew what to do in terms of, uh, my granddad maintaining the interest in aviation because I had no interest in aviation. I, he it wasn't something he talked a lot about with me. You know, he moved on to, to he, in my lifetime, I always remembered him connected with canoeing and camping and fishing and things like that. And uh, he he had no shortage of interest. He was also an avid rock hound. One of the things they liked to do a lot when they traveled around was stop in some remote area and uh, Zeke would start hunting rocks and Louise would set up a a painting setup and she would sit out there for the day and paint. She was a, a painter as well as a poet. And, but he did great things with rocks, and then he had, of course, a bunch of machines at home. He would polish them up two feet from where I'm sitting. We have a, a big plate we always leave out with a bunch of his, his I don't know, best rocks. I'll call them his best
0: rocks. From Kelly Field, he was sent to Everman Field Number 2 at Camp Tolliver near Fort Worth, Texas. It was here that members of the Canadian Royal Flying Corps arrived to help get their American allies up to speed. A November 17, 1917 letter from Zeke recorded this moment. About eight or 900 Canadians came in today, and we had to give up the barracks. We'll be in the hangars for a few days. These Canucks are big, fine, friendly fellows, but 80% are from the states up around New York. They joined in Canada because they could get in easier. Most of them are cadets, just learning to fly. We'll have some fun, too, because with these new flyers and new machines, there'll be lots of crashes. That and mealtime are the two most important things here. We are just getting fixed up. Now to have a good time. I think we stay here for a while at least. We start to school tomorrow and I think it'll be good. We will learn the war game from A to Z as far as aviation is concerned. The mechanics and pilots learn from the more experienced Canadian teachers. During his education, Zeke told Louise, we are all red ribbon aviators in the 147th. We wear red ribbons on our shoulders while going to school. Everyone thinks we're officers. When their training was completed, they were sent to Hicksfield No. 2 at Camp Tolliver. During his transfer, Louise wrote to Zeke, filling him in on family news, and once again showed her humorous side when discussing a mutual acquaintance. You never told me about that Marietta guy, and I am all curiosity. What was it he told you about me? Nothing criminal, I hope. Horrors! What if he shall be the guy I met in jail up there the time they got me for being drunk and disorderly? Zeke and his comrades were eventually ordered to the Western Front. They were sent to Garden City, New Jersey, and from there marched a short distance to New York Harbor. There, they boarded the British liner, the SS Cedric, and steamed across the Atlantic. During the voyage over, the Flying Circus newspaper appeared, claiming on its title page to be the first aviation paper ever published. Originally, the term Flying Circus applied to the German Air Service. Their pilots decided to paint their aircraft in a variety of different colors, and this gave them sort of a circus-like appearance. One pilot. Manfred von Richthofen gained his famous nickname, the Red Baron, for his bright red plane. The term Flying Circus seems to have been adopted by the American Air Corps by 1918. Zeke writes, We are called the Flying Circus Air Squadron, and it is well named too, for we are moving most of the time. Now commenting on the shared moniker, Zeke wrote, The Huns have a Flying Circus Squadron, but I think we have them beat. Hun was a derogatory nickname used primarily by the British and Americans during the First World War to describe the German army. Historically, the Huns were pastoral nomadic people who amassed a large fighting force and challenged the might of Rome. Attila the Hun is likely the most familiar Hun to people. The reputation for savagery and brutality followed them into the 19th century. During the Boxer Rebellion, which took place from 1899 to 1900, Kaiser Wilhelm II of Germany sent troops into China. In his speech, he told the departing forces to behave like the Huns of old and to wreak vengeance. One line from his speech in particular came to haunt the Germans. Let the German strike fear into the hearts, so he'll be feared like the Hun. This unwelcome name stuck during World War I. The Patriarch posters in U.S. and Britain were adorned with slogans such as Halt the Huns and Beat Back the Huns. Zeke used the term freely throughout his letters. On March 18th, Zeke reassured Louise they had traversed the Atlantic safely without encountering any subs and reached England. I should note he put subs in parentheses because it was likely to be a new and unfamiliar term to Louise and most people back home. World War I truly brought warfare into the industrial age. Besides airplanes, poison gas was used on the battlefield, giant mechanized tanks made their debut, and submarines, subs, played a significant military role for the first time during the Great War. In fact, it was Germany's threat of unrestricted warfare upon neutral United States shipping, which largely turned the tide on the issue of American non-interference. The next document letter from Zeke is about two weeks later. He's arrived in France, and after a miserable march, he's reached the Tours Aerodrome. This is a large complex of training facility and airfields. Here, they continue their education, gaining instruction in French aircraft by French instructors. Despite a rigorous schedule, Zeke found time to sightsee and collect souvenirs for the folks back home. We got passes today and went sightseeing. I had a splendid time. I wish I could tell you all about this place, but dear, I'll have to save it up for you when I get back. I saw some grand old places. This place is so picturesque. He knows that the souvenirs he sends are the best he can get from camp. This is not allowed to send anything else over. He finds the clash of cultures here a little overwhelming, remarking, I got my English, French, Italian, Chinese, and USA mixed up so I can hardly understand myself. For most of us, mention of the Western Front invariably conjures up images of cratered no-man's lands. Rows of muddy trenches locked behind barbed wire and foolhardy charges of men swarming going over the top straight into deadly fire machine guns or a roaring blast of artillery. Zeke's experience on the Western Front was quite a bit different. For one, he was in a support role, a mechanic for the airplanes, or buses, as he called them. He did go to the front on occasion to repair downed planes, but spent most of his time in the airbase. However, this post could be equally as dangerous. Enemy planes regularly buzzed his post. During these incidents, he would find ingenious ways to write. In a 1918 letter to Louise, he recalled such a moment. I am in my pup tent tonight, writing with my candle camouflage, from the stray Huns who may be up among the stars. The United States sustained more than 320,000 casualties in the First World War. Over 53,000 were killed in action, 204,000 wounded and suffered, and 63,000 were from non-combat related deaths. Diseases killed far more men than bullets and shells. The influenza pandemic of 1918 in particular exacted a grim toll. The unsanitary conditions of the trenches and camps spread influenza, typhoid, trench foot, and trench fever. Trench fever was caused by lice, or cooties, as the men dubbed them. This potentially deadly disease struck down thousands. Famed fantasy author J.R.R. R. Tolkien nearly lost his life to trench fever while serving in the British Army at the Battle of the Somme. Those not directly on the front lines could also be infected. Zeke commented on this to Louise. Say, hunting wood ticks may be a great sport, but hunting cooties is quite common here. They are very popular, though. The few off-hours we have from 10 p.m. to 3 a.m. is devoted to chasing them. In early June 1918, the 147th settled into an aerodrome about two and a half miles from the city of Toul, northwest France. Learning of this movement, a German plane flew over the base and dropped a photograph they had taken with a note attached. It read, Welcome, prepare to meet thy doom. This bravado didn't deter the Americans' resolve. Zeke proudly continued to relate the exploits of his squadron back home. O'Neill, on one of our flyers, on one of my machines, brought down three Huns in two days. The group got 11 that day. I wish I could tell you all about this game, but can't. You think I'm having a hard time, but gee, it is great. It's the best job of the whole war, although we work very hard. The O'Neill mentioned by Zeke is likely Ralph Ambrose O'Neill. O'Neill was an American flying ace, a title one could claim after shooting down five planes. As a side note, O'Neill was contracted in 1920 after the war to develop the Mexican Air Force. He was a pioneer in later commercial aviation. Zeke was ever mindful of the military censors who were on the hunt for anything that could help their enemy should the letter be intercepted. Zeke always made the censor's job easy. He avoided telling Louise and anyone else he wrote any revealing information. Louise's sister, Elizabeth Libby Marsh, once asked Zeke if her incoming letters to him were being censored. Sarcastically, he replied, no, your letters are not censored. What would you write to help the Kaiser anyway? Zeke also never tried to send home his collection of photographs, always promising to show them off upon his return.
1: I wonder if he ever got them home. Families were big on photographs and showing them around and slides. And over the years, to have not seen that, I, I can't imagine him having them and just going, oh, I don't think anybody will care. I won't bring them out. Mm-hmm. But I, again, I, I don't know what happened. But, um, there was a, a pamphlet, not a pamphlet, a booklet that came out about their squadron because of Eddie Rickenbacker. And he proudly gave me a copy of that, which I read over and had for years. I no longer have it. But it outlined, uh, the history of, I guess, I think squadron is the right word. I, I know so little. And I, I remember how proud he was of the association with Eddie Rickenbacker. Without the mechanics, the plane doesn't get up in the sky.
0: There are not many known letters for Zeke in mid-1918. This could be due to the intense maneuvers the 147th endured during this time. In July, they went to another aerodrome, this time to deal with a German buildup in a different sector. Zeke remarked that he had grown accustomed to sounds of warfare, joking, I've heard the big guns roar for the past few months and couldn't sleep if they stopped, I believe. On nights when things are pretty quiet, the boys throw stones on the house so we can sleep. The 147th moved yet again to another AeroDome in August 1918 following the flow of the war. Later that month, their planes began patrolling the Argonne and Verdun sector. Their mission changed from air interdiction to supporting movements of advancing troops. Fearing the arrival of the United States and the immense resources they could bring to bear, Germany launched an all-out offensive in March dubbed the Spring Offensive. At first, this last-ditch effort appeared to be on the verge of success. Ultimately, the advance stalled, and the Allies steadily pushed back their foes, reversing a stalemate of years. The 147th also participated in the decisive Meuse-Aragon counteroffensive. At 11 a.m. on November 11, 1918, the armistice that ended World War I came into effect. It was the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month. Fighting continued in other parts of the world, but this was the turning point. The 147th was ordered to the air depot of colombe les Aerodrome. Here, they began to demobilize, preparing to return home. Zeke wrote of this period of waiting with a soldier's pragmatism. We're still here, but ready to go anytime. I don't know when we do, though. Maybe a day or so, maybe a month. I hope it's soon, anyway. As one war was ending, another type of war was beginning. The so-called Spanish flu began its deadly ravages. Contrary to popular belief, this lethal contagion was not likely Spanish in origin. According to the CDC, although there is not universal consensus regarding where the virus originated, it spread worldwide during 1918-1919. to In the United States, it was first identified in military personnel in spring 1918. Spain, a neutral country, was one of the few places publishing uncensored reports about this illness, giving rise to the term Spanish flu. Once again, the CDC supplies this following data. It is estimated that about 500 million people, or one-third of the world's population, became infected with this virus. The number of deaths was estimated to be at least 50 million worldwide, with about 675,000 occurring in the United States. Many declare this outbreak was God's judgment visited upon humanity for the atrocities of the Great War. Zeke referenced the Spanish flu, and only one of his final European letters to Louise. He expressed fear about carrying the disease back home. I don't suppose you've taken the flu shot yet. All of our boys have left us now. I was hoping we'd go back together. Mom said one of the kids had the flu. How are they anyway? I hope the rest don't get it if I did. One final move was left in the 147th's overseas Adventures. They were relocated to Brest, France. Finally, on March 8, 1919, they boarded a troop ship and sailed back to New York Harbor. Some of the 147th were mustered out on Long Island, but Zeke remained in service till April 11th, 1919. In 1920, he and Louise were married, beginning their long life together.
1: When Zeke and Louise got married, their honeymoon was going down to southern West Virginia with Matt McCoy and his young bride and running a place together for a few days and having that be their honeymoon. And they got down there and the shots were fired in the night, and they went and hid under the bed. They thought the Hatfields were probably coming for matt didn't didn't turn out to be a bigger problem than that, but I remember them talking about hiding under their bed on their wedding night to us kids growing up, they were really an exciting couple. They lived in West Virginia their whole lives, but after Zeke retired uh in nineteen fifty nine or sixty they began to spend six months a year traveling the u the north travel North America in their Little Camper Van, Itchyfoot, And this was before I heard of any people traveling around in vans, which became quite a big thing by the end of the 60s. But they would roll up every summer to our house, and we would run out and see what was the latest thing they would brought along in their van. And we always knew when they did come to town that uh, our grandma Louise, was going to take us out to get new shoes and all the used books we could carry from the Salvation Army bookstore. They were only five cents each. She loved to have us read and we would be set for months on end with that. I I also would mention that they would swing into town. They'd have been out west or maybe up in Banff or something or other. And granddad would always have stories. There was truth within the stories, but he would spin them out into yarns. You knew that they weren't, you knew he was making stuff up, but there was enough detail in there that you think, Oh, he really did meet a guy like that. And he really did see that thing. And by the time he was done, we figured he and Grandma had founded the West.
0: Cecil, Zeke Gabriel died in 1972, and Louise Marsh Gabriel, 1997.
1: Uh, Louise was, of course, a more mid-range voice, and she talked uh, a little more rapidly. And she, had, to me, she had a, a fairly strong West Virginia twang. Well, Zeke had kind of a low roll to his voice. He had a deep uh, rumbly voice, and again when he would talk, he he talked a little slower than Louise did, because you've always felt like he had an internal rhythm going, and this is part of what made his stories effective. Is it's like you know you're going to have to hear this story, my boy. I'm going to tell it to you now. You know.
0: As I bring this podcast to a close, I ask for just a little bit more of your patience. There's an odd shift ahead. So far I've been talking about World War One and all things historical, but I want to close out by drawing upon a metaphor found in a science fiction film. It's 1982's classic Blade Runner by Ridley Scott, and any fan of the film probably knows exactly what moment I'm going to be driving to here. Towards the end of the movie, death closes in on one character, and he has this moment of reflection upon his all-too-short life and his legacy, and he says, I'll paraphrase it, I've seen things you people wouldn't believe. All those moments will be lost in time, like tears in the rain. It's all too easy to lose to extraordinary people like Zeke and Louise, the cataclysm of the Great War. But we have their letters, their their voices echo back up to us every time we read them. But there's another way that their legacy carries on. They married and had children. One of their sons was Cecil Marsh Gabriel who then had a son, Daniel Gabriel, and the name carries on to this day.
1: It's a wonderful legacy for my granddad and my grandma.